All right, everybody, we are back. We are reading the, what is it? The, the oh, title's yes. kind of long. Quest for Justice, Select Tales with Modern Illuminations from the Mahabharat by Hridayananda Goswami, also known by his legal name as Howard Resnick, PhD in Sanskrit and Indian Studies from Harvard University. Also comedian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I know we had cut off or ended last time. Um, Krishna, it was kind of going over the chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, right? So yeah. chapter four, Krishna explains why he's descended, yada, yada, yada. The end of that um, was Krishna tells that it's the waning or the collapsing of Dharma and the rising of Adharma that brings him to this world. Yeah. Okay, so I'll pick up from there. The next verse, in which Krishna explains his earthly mission, is also extremely famous. Paritranaya sadhunam vinashaya chaduskritam dharma samstarpanataya sambhavami yuge yuge. To deliver the righteous, destroy the wicked, and restore dharma, I appear in every age. As you can see, dharma is the key concept in all of this. But not all dharmas are equal. For example, in chapter 9, Krishna criticizes what he calls Trayi Dharma, literally the triad or the three, a common way of referring to the three Vedas. Actually, there are four Vedas, but one is a little voodoo-esque, with directions for the casting of spells and other such things. So even back in ancient days, it was held somewhat at a distance. Oh, the Atharva Veda, you keep the fourth, I'll just stick with the three. Don't get me wrong, the Atharva Veda is one of the Vedas, and it is respected and held to be sacred. But higher class Brahmanas tend to emphasize only the Rig, Sama, and Yajur Veda. And again, uh, Srila Vyasadeva, uh, he's the one who took... All the Vedic scriptures were once kind of one big giant conglomeration of yeah. teachings, and he split them up according to their different, uh, you know... Anyway, and in the Gita, Krishna also refers to the Vedas as Trayi, Trayi, the three, and talks of Trayi Dharma. Krishna's strong critique of the Vedas in the Gita is a whole other very interesting topic. His criticism in this case focuses on the Karmakanda, the materialistic part of culture where the perspective essentially is, I prayed to God and I got a beautiful new house, a fantastic promotion, and so on. Within Vedic culture, there were materialists that used the power of the Vedas to advance themselves materially. And Krishna, from the highest spiritual platform, is speaking of the folly of this approach, explaining that the real point of Dharma is not to obtain material reward. That's not what it's about at all. Krishna says that those who take shelter of Trayi Dharma, Trayi, the Dharma of the materialistic Vedas earn only a trip ticket. They go up to higher material planets and come right back down again. So you would liken it to, okay, you work really hard all year just so you can save up and go on a two-week vacation. Then you gotta come back. And then yeah. you have to come right back and <clears throat> to keep work hard again. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's what Krishna calls gatagatam, literally going and coming. So there are materialistic dharmas that enable one to obtain certain material rewards, and they really do work, but they cannot help us to advance in spiritual life. In chapter 11, Arjuna praises Krishna as Shashvata Dharma Gopta, 
the protector of eternal dharma. So here Arjuna declares that there is a dharma of the pure soul and that Krishna protects the dharma. Then in chapter 14, Krishna declares Brahmanyo hi pratishtamaha, I'm sorry, Brahmanyo hi pratishtaham and Shashvatasya chadharmasya. I am the basis, the foundation, not only of the Brahman, but also of the eternal dharma. So Krishna says he is the pratishta, the foundation of sanatana dharma, eternal dharma, the dharma of the soul. I added that dharma of the soul because earlier they, he was talking about sanatana dharma. Yeah. Right. Finally, in a dramatic concluding verse of the Bhagavad Gita, not the final verse, but really the climactic verse, Krishna says, Sarva dharman par giving up all dharmas, mam ekam sharanam vraja, go to me alone for shelter. But what could he mean by this statement? Krishna's whole point in speaking the Bhagavad Gita is to convince Arjuna to do his dharma as a warrior. And yet at the very end, Krishna tells Arjuna to give up all dharmas and simply take shelter of him. While these two commands may seem paradoxical, they are not contradictory since Krishna, God, is the be-all and end-all of existence. There's a nice verse in the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, second chapter, that speaks to this point. Vasudeva Paraveda, Vasudeva Paramaka, Vasudeva Parayoga, Vasudeva Parakriya. I remember uh, Wisdom of the Sages reading this verse, and it's very beautiful. Vasudeva Param Jnanam, Vasudeva Param Tapa, Vasudeva Parodharmo, Vasudeva Paragati. Translation. In the revealed scriptures, the ultimate object of knowledge is Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead. The purpose of performing sacrifices is to please Him. Yoga is for realizing Him. All fruitive activities are ultimately rewarded by Him alone. He is the supreme knowledge, and all severe austerities are performed to know Him. Religion, Dharma, is rendering loving service unto Him. He is the supreme goal of life. Him, of course, being Krishna, God. Paradoxes, by the way, are a common theme in the Sanskrit literature, and they have a very specific purpose when they arise. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, for example, with reference to Krishna's descent, there is a recurring, apparently paradoxical theme, Ajo Jayate, the unborn has taken birth. Then there is Akartur Karma, the actions of those who do not act. We'll talk more about paradoxes later in this week. Quotations. You see, it's a theological cliffhanger. <laughs> I've spent a good deal of time talking about dharma because it's so central to the Mahabharata. Without understanding the utter seriousness with which the figures in the Mahabharata regarded dharma, one cannot properly grasp the whys and wherefores of their thoughts, feelings, and actions, as presented in the text. For them, dharma, the universal cosmic force, the divine law governing all life, was a tangible, undisputable reality. The Mahabharata is essentially the tale of how a faction of, how a faction of powerful Asuras, uh, villains, like basically Asura means the non-godly people, yeah. tried to use Dharma to gain control of the world, beginning with Earth, and how they were ultimately stopped in the culminating battle of Kurukshetra. Alright, that's the end of the setting, setting the stage. stage. Man. Uh... Yeah, I mean, basically, just real quick, and then I'll get into the next one. You know, we watched Star Wars. You and I are huge Star Wars fans. 
<clears throat> the way that this culture believed in dharma mm -hmm. was like the same uh the force was the you know the jedi they their whole entire life was dedicated to it and that is so but it wasn't just like that only for the brahmanas of the kshatriyas everyone in society was brought up yeah to understand what dharma is and understand their place in society and therefore understand how they're contributing ultimately to the good of everyone yeah so it was <clears throat> like it was a it was the number one core to all of society so it's very important <clears throat> yeah i carry around these paintbrushes speaking of star wars right oh. <laughs> and so and to like you know fiddle with or whatever and so Unfortunately, I haven't found like I wish I could find a pen that feels the same. Something about the weight and like the texture of this just works better for me. But basically, I cut off the bristles, so you don't necessarily notice it as a paintbrush because it just mm -hmm. those just started to fall out eventually when I was a kid. So I developed the method of just immediately cutting them off to deal with <laughs> <laughs> deal with less later. Um, but one of my coworkers, uh, like the other day, I mentioned something, and she's like, "What are you talking about? My, my paintbrushes?" And she's like, "What?" And I pulled it out, and I was like, "This is a paintbrush." And she's like. I thought that was like a lightsaber that you broke the handle off for some reason or something. Because <laughs> you're such a Star Wars fan, I just assumed you'd found yourself like a mini lightsaber and you're just twirling a lightsaber around. Like, and oh then one God. of my other coworkers uh, was like, you give him way too much credit. <laughs> Bro, Veda finds them around the house sometimes. No, I'm saving those. That's neat eyes. When he comes over, I want to give it to him. <clears throat> Alright. We'll get into the next chapter. Bhishma. It is titled Bhishma which means that one who has taken the terrible vow. So Bhishma, the terrible vow. Is that actually what his name means? Well, his, his original name is actually Devavrata. Okay, okay. And then after he takes this vow... He becomes known he, as Bhishma. He, he becomes known as Bhishma. It means he, one who has undertaken a, a terrible vow. <clears throat> All right. Key uh, intro music. Okay. <laughs> Think for a moment the life of a small child, blessed with the fortune of good parents. The child goes about its days playing and thinking of its own needs, unaware of how the parents are working or worrying or struggling to protect the child. In a similar way, from the perspective of the Mahabharata, we are not aware of all that is being done on our behalf within the universe. Things we take for granted each day that are not merely due to earthly circumstances, the fruits, vegetables, grains, and water that sustain all life, the regularity of sunrise and sunset, the remnant of moral orders that enable us to pursue our own spiritual vision, and so on. Nor do we realize that powerful celestial beings manage such large affairs and work for the world's welfare, the demigods, sometimes contending with the powerful forces that oppose the good. Even the Old Testament recognizes that within the universe, there are very powerful beings. The commandment to have no other gods before me, for example, is not a claim that there are no other gods, but only that one has to get them in the right order. Oh wow, I really like that. Other parts of the Old Testament actually list different deities, but always while insisting that one must give oneself only to the supreme god. That's one thing that was frustrating my mom's family growing up. I love them, but... We used to catch a lot of flack for that. Oh, you Hare Krishnas, you guys are going to burn in hell. It's like mm -hmm. That kind of like fire yeah. and brimstone thing. And it's like, we're worshiping the same God. And you, but yeah. because <clears throat> they were, you know, they've now since changed. You know, the last time we visited, much more open-minded. It was really refreshing. Yeah. But it, it's that 
we go through our life with blinders on thinking the way I'm going is the right way and I'm not willing to look anywhere else because then I might question what I've come to believe in. And it's like, uh, anyway. So the notion exists not only in Vedic culture, but also in biblical culture, that the universe beyond our earth is not an uninhabited desert, but rather populated in various ways. Uh -huh. There are celestial demographics, one might say, living beings up there and out there who are fundamentally beyond our reach. Aliens! <laughs> the eighth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam describes a great battle that is basically the preface to the events of the Mahabharata. Often there are tensions in this world between those who do good and those who would pursue their own selfish ends, regardless of the cost to others. And sometimes, despite our best efforts to avoid it, those tensions break out into violent conflict. Long ago, in the higher spheres of the universe, something of this sort occurred between the suras and asuras, Sanskrit for godly and ungodly. So, or, you know, you could say spiritual and mechanical, mechanically minded, you know, <clears throat> they didn't believe in God. Interestingly, the leaders of these opposing forces were actually related as cousins, with the leading suras being the sons of Aditi and the leading asuras being the sons of Diti. In this case, the asuras, the bad guys, were beginning to dominate the field and had a chance, a serious chance of prevailing. That is, until Vishnu appeared on the scene. So who is Vishnu? For one thing, the whole Mahabharata assumes that we all know that Krishna is Vishnu. But apart from this, what do the Vedic literatures tell us about Vishnu? We can begin with a word about linguistic analysis and the dating of texts. It's fairly simple. If we study the English in, say, Chaucer, it's obviously older than the English in Shakespeare, which is obviously older than the English in the latest edition of the New York Times. So there are different detectable levels in the evolution of a language, and this can be seen in Sanskrit as well. The four Vedas, Rig, Sama, Yajur, and Atharva, are considered the earliest Sanskrit texts. And among these, the Rig Veda is the oldest, according to linguistic analysis. Without going over the whole history, Suffice it to say that each of the four Vedas was entrusted to a very competent, extended family of sages who would carefully preserve these texts, handing them down from generation to generation, which is why we have them today. And that's why when people, you know, like, no, it really was 5,000. I mean, it's these families, yeah. you know, maintain these histories for thousands of years, even though much of, you know, like Rome and the... The Library of Alexandria. I mean, much of that knowledge has been lost, but this, a lot yeah. of that knowledge came, was was inspired by this. Yeah, the, the Renaissance and all of that. Apart from the preserving, apart from preserving the original Vedas themselves, these communities of sages also produced works that explain the meaning of their respective Vedas. These explanatory texts, which are also very ancient, are called the Brahmanas. Hmm. Brahmanas. Okay. So the Rig Veda is the oldest of the four Vedas, and among its Brahmanas, the oldest is the Aitreya Brahmana. I'm sorry, Aitareya Brahmana, 23. Okay, he has a note about it. The Aitareya Brahmana is commonly attributed to one author, Mahidas Aitareya, and is dated somewhere from 1000 BCE to 500 BCE. Broken into 40 chapters, Adhyayas, grouped into eight Panchikas, 
The work covers topics like animal and other forms of sacrifices, anointing practices of kings, and other religious holidays and observances. So not all of the Vedas were like just about God. And that's yeah. why Vyasadeva ended up writing the Bhagavatam. That's the essence of the Veda, which yeah, is solely dedicated to the worship of the Supreme Being. Because, you know, sacrifices, etc. Yeah. Animal sacrifices specifically are not really condoned. Yeah. In, well, the idea behind the animal sense. sacrifice is just to give a, you know... Because they did practice them in the Bible, the biblical times. Which is why... Um, that's why the Buddha appeared was because people were starting to use the Vedic injunctions for animal sacrifice as a way to, Oh yeah, we're going to eat meat. The thing is when they did them with the, with the proper Brahmanas that were actually empowered to do them, the idea was that they would sacrifice the animal according to the mantras they were chanting, you know, the, the animal would enter the fire, but then be the, the reward to the animal was that it would be transferred into a human body so that it could now pick up in a human form of life. So it was actually to the credit of the animal. It's not like they were killing it just so that they could eat it right. and have some big feast. So, right. And then, <clears throat> obviously, in Kali Yuga, it's like, we don't, we're not able to do that. Yeah. We don't have the Shakti or the, you yeah, know, the, the no, knowledge. Not at all. It's been lost. And so, therefore, Buddha came to say, you know, no, we should be ahimsa, nonviolent to everybody. Yeah. So... So the Rig Veda is the oldest of the four Vedas, and among its Brahmanas, the oldest is the Aitareya Brahmana, okay, which is thousands of years older than, for example, the commentary by Sayana. What interests us here is the fact that the very first passage of the Aitareya Brahmana, mm -hmm. this ancient in-house commentary on the Rig Veda, refers to Vishnu as the highest god, Agni as the lowest, and all the others in between. That's interesting. Agni is listed as the lowest because he lives within our house. Hmm. The fire that keeps us warm, cooks our food, and so on. Interestingly, from this Sanskrit word for fire comes the English word ignite. Agni. Ignite. Mm. In any case, the Aitareya Brahmana ref reference to Vishnu is confirmed by statements in other Vedas as well. For example, in the Yajur Veda, Yajur means the way one does sacrifice. Mm. Yagna. We find the statement, Yagno Vai Vishnu. Sacrifice is Vishnu. Hmm. The idea is that the sacrifice creates a channel to the divine, meaning that somehow by performing the Vedic sacrifice, one directly comes into Vishnu's presence. Statements similar to this are scattered throughout the earliest Sanskrit texts. Thus, traditionally, historically, in very ancient times, Vishnu was considered the Purusha, the creator of the universe, the Sattva Devata, the superintending deity of goodness, the Param, Supreme, and so on. Now let's get back to the battle between the Suras and the Asuras. Srimad Bhagavatam tells how, at a certain point in the battle, the Suras, the good guys, were almost defeated. Feeling discouraged, they began to earnestly meditate on Lord Vishnu, who immediately came onto the scene, seated on the back of Garuda. Of course, Vishnu's arrival signaled a reversal, an ultimate turning point in the battle. And to make a long story short, <coughs> excuse me, the suras went on <clears throat> sorry, to become victorious. This, however, is not the end of the story. The asuras, the bad guys, had no intention of giving up. Wanting to seize control of the universe for their own selfish purposes, they devised a strategy by which to proceed, a strategy that resulted in the events of the Mahabharata. It was like... Oh, uh, 
It was like Star Wars when the Darth Vader gang tried to use the dark side of the Force to dominate the universe. I love it. Star Wars reference. Woo. If you make a study of insurgency movements throughout the world, you'll find that they all follow a similar pattern. There's some political or military force that attempts but fails to seize control of a state or a country, be it Chechnya, Colombia, or Nigeria, Afghanistan. After failing, they generally withdraw to a remote geographical location where the government forces can't reach them, like the mountains, desert, or jungle. The aim is to retreat to a place that is both topographically and geographically inaccessible, a secluded spot where they can hide out, regroup, and gain strength for their march upon the capital. According to the Mahabharata, this is exactly what happened in ancient times. After Vishnu's battlefield appearance and their ultimate defeat, the Asuras divided into two camps. One camp, led by Bali, respected Vishnu. Bali was actually a devotee of Vishnu, as we know from the pastime and so wanted nothing to do with a so-called insurgency. So he was the gracious loser. The other camp wanted to continue the fight, being determined to impose their will. Within the Vedic tradition, by the way, Bali is considered a very great soul due to his relation to Vishnu, who he eventually meets face to face. This is described in the Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 8, the story of Vamana, the dwarf incarnation of the Lord. Now the Asuras, even though on the dark side, also had their guru, because a guru is simply an empowered teacher, with some gurus assisting the godly and others assisting their opposites. In this case, the guru of the Asuras was Shukracharya, whose name literally translates as Professor White. <laughs> <laughs> Saruman the White, right? He was a you know, very wise person, but a bad guy, yeah. ultimately. You know? yeah. And who possessed a particular shakti, a Shan, Shanjivani mantra, which worked like this. Okay, so now he's going into the details of how their plan worked. If the bodies of the Asuras had not been completely destroyed in battle, reciting this mantra would revive them, literally, and bring the soul back into the body. Wow. This, of course, is exactly what Shukracharya did. Yeah, he was really, really powerful. After which the reanimated Asuras formed this insurgency to take over the universe. Their plan was to go to a remote, out-of-the-way planet on the other side of the cosmic track and take control by manipulating the power of Dharma, which even the Asuras recognized and respected. By their superior powers and without violating Dharma, they would take birth in the families of that planet's ruling dynasty and eventually rule simply by growing up. But their plan didn't stop there. They would even take birth as carnivorous animals in all of the great forests, jungles, and mountains that filled ancient India with the aim of attacking and killing the sages that meditated there for the good of the world. Man, they were like freaking supremely like, man, you want to talk about, in the movies they always make the bad guys look like these dumb, incompetent yeah. goons, but like these guys were nefarious, holy hell. Here again the idea was to cleverly, and the reason... Uh, Oh, okay, yeah, he's getting into it. Here again, the idea was to cleverly destroy these communities without violating Dharma, since killing human beings is in the nature of carnivorous beasts. Uh -huh. So they're trying to get around the laws of karma. It's crazy. Right. It is Pashu, the animal's Dharma, and thus does not incur bad reactions. This was the idea. Yeah, because if they rolled up like Hitler and just started yeah. massacring people, get, they knew that trouble. they were going to suffer consequence. Yeah. Now, it just so happens that the sleepy little out-of-the-way planet that the Asuras chose to occupy was none other than good old planet Earth, and that is the background of the Mahabharata, 
the Earth was chosen in this instance. And if you know your Star Wars, the Asuras wanted to transform Earth into a type of Death Star, which is interesting because if you read the story of Hiranyakashipu, not Hiranyakashipu, his brother Hiranyaksha, it actually describes how through his, I mean, he was very, very powerful. He was actually able to dislodge the Earth from the orbit. Mm. They say, you know, it fell into the, but basically what he's describing is a change in the Earth's orbit around the sun. Yeah. And so when Lord Vishnu appears in the form of Varaha, yeah. his, the goal of his incarnation is to redirect the Earth back into its correct orbit. Yeah. Um, and if you know your Star Wars, the Asuras wanted to transform Earth into a type of Death Star, to take over the planet and use it as a launching pad for further operations. According to the Vedas, a particular goddess is responsible for this planet. Indeed, practically all of the Sanskrit words for Earth are feminine, Bhu, Bhumi, Vashundara, and so on. Realizing what was going on and being unable to deal with the situation, Bhumi, the goddess of Earth, went to Lord Brahma, the creator, for help. Okay. I remember back in the 50s when the Hells Angels first became a cultural force in America, bursting onto the scene by invading little towns in the California desert and literally taking them over. Those little towns usually had a sheriff and maybe one or two deputies like Andy Griffith, Griffith's Mayberry. It's funny because I watch that show a lot at work. All these vets watch these old black and white shows. They're actually really entertaining. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> a lot of those, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Papa, I'm sure. Yeah. And suddenly there are 20, 30, or 40 of these tough Hells Angels roaring through town on their Harleys, and the sheriffs can't begin to cope. So what does he do? He gets on the phone and calls the state government for help. The situation in the Mahabharata was similar to this. Bhumi, like our sheriff, was unable to handle the invasion because the Asuras were from the universe's higher sectors. So the Asuras basically are the, you know, the equally powerful to the demigods, except they're not benevolent. Right. They are like, you know, they want to use and twist things to their own means. So they, you know... To their own means, also at the cost of others, yeah. at the expense of other people. Because yeah. sometimes they might get a little puffed up <clears throat> and maybe do a little bit, a couple things for themselves, yeah. but it's not usually at the expense of a whole lot of people. Her going to Brahma for help is a well-known Vedic tale, told not only in the Mahabharata, but in other Sanskrit works as well. Brahma understood the situation to be serious, since there were... These were the same Asuras that had almost defeated the Suras in the celestial battle that I mentioned before. Excuse me. Man, that, uh, them waffles. They were good, but ooh, I'm so full. He fed and watered me kindly today. <laughs> fed and watered. Fed and coffee. <laughs> I, like, I, I bathed you. <laughs> <laughs> Only Vishnu's intervention had saved the day, tipping the balance in the Suras' favor. Right now, they had to go run home to Dad. Dad, yeah. they're bullying me. Yeah, basically. Right now, however, Vishnu was not present. So Brahma went to the ocean of milk. Mm -hmm. Milky Way. Whatever. That's how I always find, think of it as, you know, the galaxy. Or the, yeah. I think it the is of the, yeah. the center of our galaxy, essentially, is how I kind of... It sounds to me when they talk... When, they, when you read the pastime. Yeah. To summon him by offering prayers. Which is interesting, too, because at the center of each galaxy, they say there is a supermassive black hole, which is so powerful that it causes everything to rotate around it, right? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Here it would be a good 
to mention that the Vedas offer all types of, types of extravagant, fantastical descriptions, and we should avoid being geocentric in our approach. Materialistic scientists, of course, never tire of reminding us that it is they who save the world from the notion that the Earth is the center of the universe. Yet, when it comes to these extraordinary depictions, many scientists have retained a geocentric view. Interesting, yeah? In other words, they assume that the way things currently happen on Earth are the way they've always happened, and the way that they happen everywhere else in the universe. But there is no logical reason to make this assumption. There is no logical reason to deny the possibility of things going on in the distant parts of the greater universe that are outside our present experience, our awareness, and even our imagination. In the words of Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy or conceived of in your science. Think for a minute of an ant crawling on your arm. Well, always back to the ants. I love it. <clears throat> Think for a minute of an ant crawling on your arm. Although the ant, in one sense, knows more about the topography of, what of that arm than you do, because of its limited consciousness, it cannot comprehend that it crawls on an arm, which is attached to a human being, who is part of an entire civilization. The ant is wholly unaware of the world that we inhabit, even though it lives in the same location. Similarly, there's a real sense in which we human beings, with an awareness that barely stretches beyond our surroundings, literally, <laughs> We'll never be able to wholly comprehend where we are, what the earth is, what occurs in other spheres, and so on. In any case, <clears throat> Brahma went to the shore of this great ocean and meditated, praying to Vishnu. Vishnu then telepathically informed Brahma, so the idea is that Brahma prays to Lord Vishnu, which he understands Vishnu resides in the heart of all living beings, so it's really meditating upon Vishnu yeah. within himself. And then Vishnu inspires him and speaks to him, you know, from the, from that that interaction. Vishnu then informed Brahma that he himself would descend to restore Dharma and make things right, and that the suras should also take birth to join in the great earthly struggle to come. Vishnu also indicated that he would specifically take birth in the Yadu dynasty, one of the world's great dynasties at that time. That, of course, was the birth, the descent of Krishna. Therefore, two popular names of Krishna are Yadava and Yadupati, because he appeared in that dynasty. Meanwhile, back on earth, the Asuras were taking birth and beginning the first wave of their insurgency. And while Krishna's appearance was yet to come, another avatara came down to assist him. That avatara is mentioned earlier, or as mentioned earlier, was Vyas, Vyasadeva, or Veda Vyas who would participate in these events, recount them, and help to move the action along. Imagine you are on Earth many, many thousands of years ago, and unsettling things <coughs> excuse me, are happening. Many unsettling things are happening because the Asuras, the bad guys, have come. There are unprecedented attacks on yogis and sages in the forest, and people are starting to notice that strange characters are taking birth as princes in important royal families. And they would know this because they would do astrology. And astrology yeah. basically was, you're born at this exact moment, this time, these stars. It's it's basically like a blueprint for what kind of conditioning you're going to yeah, have. Yeah, what, what are the energies that are affecting <clears throat> you? Yeah. Astrology is heavily based on karma. Yeah. Yeah. 
Of course, the godly people are still there, and there's still the majority on earth, but things are starting to change, and there's great concern. So at this point, I'd like to go directly to some of the Mahabharata stories. I'll start by talking about the events surrounding the union of King Shantanu, Shantanu and the goddess Ganga, and how these events are linked to the story of Satyavati and her extraordinary relationship with Parashara, the celebrated sage. It is the story of two couples, each of which came together only to be separated, and how the two remaining partners eventually found each other and fell in love. All this, of course, is of great relevant to subsequent of great relevance to subsequent events. So prepare yourselves for the next few minutes. It'll be getting a little romantic. You want to read it for a little bit? Yeah. Sounds like your voice is starting to go out. You want to read it for about a solid half hour, I think. <laughs> you did good. I don't know if I'll last as long. All right. <clears throat> if you look at a world map, apart from the Americas, which are somewhat removed from the rest, what you find is one gigantic landmass consisting of Africa. Europe, and Asia. We can divide it into different continents if we like, but it's actually one mass comprising most of the world, with India practically at its center. And interestingly, up to around 250 years ago, over a quarter of the world's wealth could be found in India. Even the Roman Empire had severe economic problems because they were importing many items from India and paying in gold, having nothing else that India wanted in return. <laughs> I guess the Indians back then weren't into Roman statues, he put. <laughs> so anyway, you have this land, this India, which is practically the geographic center of most of the world, and by far the world's richest country, something that Marco Polo, Polo happened to notice. Also, according to Magasthenes, an ambassador to India some 2,300 years ago, mm. India was the one place in the world where there was no slavery, and in which there were not only human and animal rights, but also freedom and other types of advantages. India was a freedom civilization. Of they were allowed to criticize the government, yeah. the king, without getting beheaded. <laughs> Indo India was a civilization that originated yoga and even discovered that the real object of consciousness is consciousness itself. And according to this ancient literature, India was also was the place where the avatars appeared. It was sort of like their private landing strip, the airport of the avatars. <clears throat> now, in this highly sophisticated ancient land, the greatest dynasty was that of the Kurus. In fact, that's why the Bhagavad Gita begins with Dharmaksetre Kuruksetre, on the Dharma field, on the field of the Kurus. So the Kurus were the great royal family of the time, and their king was Shantanu. It is said that Shantanu was so virtuous that he had the power to heal by touch. This is mentioned both in the Bhagavatam and in the Mahabharata. In fact, that's the etymology of his name. He could bring healing to bodies simply by touching them. In any case, through various circumstances, this great king, Santanu, one day encountered Ganga, the goddess of the Ganges River, who happened to be visiting Earth at the time. She's not literally Ganges water, you know, melting Himalayan snow. Rather, she's the person that is the goddess of the Ganges, and so infuses her own pure nature into the Ganges water. Here the idea is that behind every phenomenon, there is a person. For example, here we see that the lights are on and the microphone is working, but this didn't just happen automatically. Some person saw to these arrangements. The sound system may be mechanical, but there's a person behind its operation. Or let's say that all goes well and there's a nice morning breakfast waiting for us when we rise. This didn't just happen by itself. Someone worked very sincerely to prepare, prepare this meal. The idea is that personal consciousness is behind everything. Nothing is automatic. 
In the same way, there is Ganga, the goddess of the Ganges River, who somehow met King Santanu while visiting the earth. This was not as uncommon as one might think. Indeed, according to this picture of the ancient world, there used to be a great deal of interplanetary, interplanetary intercourse and travel. Nowadays we talk of a global village, but the Mahabharata gives us the far broader picture of a cosmic village. Mm. And within that cosmic village, with higher beings trafficking back and <laughs> forth, somehow King Santanu and Ganga met, fell in love and got married, even though she was a celestial being and he was an earthly man. In that sense, it was what you might call a mixed marriage. There's a lot more to their story, and I'll have to skip since we're running out of time. For now, suffice, suffice it to say that they eventually have this very powerful child named Devavrata, who will become one of the main figures of the Mahabharata. Upon his birth, however, Ganga, for various reasons, could not stay on Earth and returned to her celestial community, taking her newborn child with her. Santanu, of course, was heartbroken and fell into a deep depression. Eventually, after training Devavrata in the human art of war, eventually after training Devavrata in the human art of war and endowing him with various superhuman powers, Ganga returned the son to the father and again went back to the celestial realm. So even though Santanu was ecstatic at having his son back, he was still depressed at having lost Ganga for a second time. Shattered and dejected, Santanu was no longer able to govern. Let's face it, this king really wasn't the bachelor type. <clears throat> so he left his ministers in charge of Hastinapur, the Kuru capital, and just started wandering, incognito and alone. And so he wandered, living in forests and so on, traveling hundreds of miles from his capital. You can actually plot the geography on a map, he put in a little side note, until one day he met a very beautiful young maiden. And although this maiden appeared to come from an unbefitting, lower-class family, things are not always as they seem. And there is a story of how this truly remarkable girl came to be in her present circumstance. Her name was Sachavati. Vati in Sanskrit is just the feminine form of Van, as in Bhagavan. So the name Sachavati means one who possesses Vati, truth. Sacha. One who possesses vati, truth, is sacha. So sacha means truth, and one who possesses is what vati means. She was actually the daughter of King Uparichara Vasu. Upar, Uparichara Vasu. Remember him? Upwardly, Mr. Upwardly, upwardly Mobile Vasu? Well, Sachavati was his daughter, but he decided not to raise her. Instead, he arranged for his princess to be raised by a family of fishing folk. Back then in India, fishing was not considered the most aristocratic occupation. So relatively speaking, this was basically a lower class family. Why then did Uparachara Vasu do such a thing? There are different versions of why in different Mahabharats, but my personal view is that Sachavati was actually destined to become the mother of an avatar who would start the ball rolling in terms of counteracting the invasion of the earth. Somehow Uparachara Vasu knew this and fearing for his daughter's safety, he sent her to grow up incognito in a fishing village, where even she did not know she was actually a princess. Wow, that makes so much sense. As you can imagine, <clears throat> back then there was a very conscious, rigorous system of genetic engineering. Of course, in those times, it was not done artificially in laboratories, but rather naturally, through very precise marriages. The idea mm. was to create from these genetic pools superior classes of human beings, great sages and kings. And since such of a tea, the descendant of a long line of kings, was herself the product of careful engineering, she was naturally endowed with all the superlative qualities of a princess, 
courage, intelligence, extraordinary beauty, and mm. so on. Yet she grew up in this very simple, highly traditional fishing community, expecting to marry a fisherman and spend the rest of her days rowing or catching fish. With all these exceptional attributes blossoming inside, however, Sachivati often felt restless and out of place without understanding why. Later, we'll tell the story of a young boy who also came from an extraordinary background, but who grew up in a lower class family, Carmen. never knowing why he felt so frustrated with his lot in life. Mm. That boy, of course, was Karna. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Sachivati's family lived on the Yamuna, and as a young girl, she would row a little boat across that river to earn extra income for her folks. One day, a very unusual person came, wanting to cross the river. It was the great sage Parashara, Parashara, who was about to play an important role in the plan to save the earth, and ultimately the universe. For as soon as he saw Sachivati, Parashara knew that she was the one who would bring an avatar into this world. At the time, Sachivati was an innocent girl in her early teens, growing up in an extremely conservative community. Suddenly, some man she's never seen steps inside her boat and literally makes an indecent proposal. <clears throat> Can we just row over that little island and make a baby? <laughs> End quote. Yet, as bizarre as this request must have seemed somehow, must have seemed somehow, Parashar was able to convince Sachivati to follow his lead. So they made their way to the island and together begot the renowned avatar Vyasa. And because Vyasa was born on an island in Sanskrit Dvipa, he was called Dvipayana. Dvipayana. Afterwards, Parashara told Sachivati that he could no longer stay on earth and left. As for Vyas, it is said yeah, that Par Parashara being a... was he was just like Ganga, he was actually from yeah. the um, you know, the other realms, not of the earth. As for Vyas, it is said that being an avatar, he took birth and immediately grew into a young boy, which surprised Sachivati even further. The boy then informed his mother that he was immediately leaving home for the Himalayan mountains where he would enter a deep trance to acquire the powers needed to perform his mission. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> just give birth to a kid, he just grows up and is like, hey, I gotta go, I got a mission, I gotta like go meditate in the Himalayas. Thanks, mom, see ya. Like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, wait, what, what just happened? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, uh, at least it saved her from having to... To bring like, like an unexplained kid unexplained, back home. Because, yeah, I mean, that would have been, you know, mm -hmm. a little awkward True. for her to... Of course, before leaving, Parashara had mystically restored Sachivati's virginity. A consolation prize? He puts in parentheses or in quotes. But after all that but after all that had transpired, one can only imagine the emotional state of this young princess. On <clears> one <throat> on the one hand, she thinks she's the daughter of a fisherman, and on the other, she doesn't understand why she can't accept her lot in life. Then suddenly her life changes. She meets the great sage Parashara, and is now dealing not with the lowest, but with the highest rung on the social ladder. And this very exalted sage makes a shockingly risque proposal, gives her a divine child, and leaves. Then the child leaves, and again, she's back in her boat. And it's like, did this really happen? Because she's back in her boat, and everybody's gone, and there she is, alone. So that's such of a tea, the beautiful young princess. Now let's get back to Santana, who's wandering around depressed, with no desire to do anything more in life. Then as fate would have it, Santanu and such of a tea meet, and they fall in love. And then he explains that actually... He's the emperor of the world. Naturally, Santanu wants to marry Sachivati, who's still in her teens. And what happens next, we see an excellent example of the commitment of these ancient people to Dharma. Even with falling deeply in love, even with the chance of going from rags to riches, they are nonetheless determined to follow Dharma, regardless of the cost. 
Being a dutiful young girl, Sachavati tells Santanu, I must first get my father's blessings. And she's fully prepared to follow whatever decision he makes. So the two go to Sachavati's father, who is the king of the fishing folk in his little village. Of course, the father's first reaction is one of astonishment that suddenly the great Santanu, the Kuru monarch, is standing in his cottage, and the idea that this great king wants to marry his daughter also amazes him. Obviously, he wants the marriage, but being somewhat shrewd by nature, he says, I'd like to give my blessings, but I have a problem. You have a son, Devavrat, who is famous throughout the world, not only as the greatest warrior, but also as someone with superhuman powers, and it is he that is destined to inherit the Kuru throne. This means that the son of my daughter, my grandson, will never rule the kingdom. More than that, he must always live in fear, because who knows what Devavrata might do to him. I can't approve this marriage, because I fear for my, grand, my future grandson's life. At this point, Santanu, who had indeed already promised the kingdom to Devavrata, wouldn't do or say anything due to his strict adherence to Dharma. It's interesting to compare this reaction to what we know about the European monarchy or monarchies in other parts of the world, where such impudence would have been dealt with quite differently. Would you like to keep your head on your shoulders? Give me your daughter. You can give me your daughter with your head on or with your head off. It's up to you. In contrast, because Santanu was so devoted to Dharma, he would not dare violate the relationship between the a father. The earth would not yeah. dare contest the word of a fisherman. Of a fisherman, yeah. Would not dare violate the relationship between a father and a daughter. Think of it. Here's this emperor, this great king, and here's this fisherman, who's an absolute nobody on the social ladder. Yet the emperor honors the relationship between the father and the daughter, even at the cost of his own desire and happiness, because that's dharma. And very reluctantly, practically more depressed than ever, Santanu returns to the city of Hastinapur, unwilling to discuss the matter with anyone. Of course, it doesn't take long for anyone that actually knows the king to notice that he's more miserable, more depressed, more listless than ever. Eventually, Santanu tells his ministers everything. Still, the king could not bring himself to tell Devavrata. My misery stems to tell Devavrata that his misery stemmed from promising the kingdom to him. For his part, however, Devavrata wasn't blind. Seeing his father moping around, looking pale and withdrawn, he directly questioned the king about the cause of his suffering. Yet even then, Santanu would only answer with vague roundabout sayings like, We Kshatriyas have a very dangerous family business. For a Kshatriya having one son is like having no son. The life expectancy of a Kshatriya is not very long, and so on. Santanu insisted that his anxiety over the dynasty was the sole cause of his sadness, and left it at that. Devavrata, however, could sense that there was something more. As a last resort, he went to Santanu's ministers to find out if his father had told them the truth. After a while, and perhaps with some hesitancy, they finally explained his father's predicament. Wandering to distant lands, meeting Sachavati, again falling in love, wanting to marry, the Fisher King's demands, and so on. Understanding everything, Devavrata immediately set out for Sachavati's village, went to the Fisher King and said, I want to bring your daughter to my father, and if the problem is the throne, let me assure you that number one, I renounce all claims, and number two, I will never fight for another kingdom against the rightful heir. That's the value, shouldn't, that's the one that gets in trouble later, and, and it's not... Yeah, and he takes one more yet, too. <clears throat> Satchavati's father was amazed that this highly qualified prince had so much love for Santanu that he would abandon his claim to the greatest throne on earth just to make him happy. There was no doubt in his mind that Devavrata meant every word and would strictly keep his vow. But he had one more concern. Devavrata's sons, if he should have any, how could he be sure that one of them wouldn't act against his grandson in the future? 
This, this person has so some serious smart, demands. He's a smart, but he's a smart dude, man. Like, you know, he ain't wrong. If we study the history of monarchies throughout the world, we'll find that the Fisher King's anxiety was well-placed. In the history of both the Roman and the Mughal empires, for example, there were sometimes century-long periods in which not one of their rulers died peacefully in bed, and not because of being killed in battle, if you know what I mean. The history of the monarchy is checkered, to say the least. And so to ease this final doubt, Devavrata made a vow that has become famous throughout India, and to some degree beyond. It even has a name, Bhishma Pratigya, the terrible oath. Never to marry, never to have children, but to remain celibate for the rest of his life. But why terrible or awful? In the original Old English sense of awful, meaning awesome or awe-inspiring. Mm. It was because Devavrata wasn't some yogi or swami who takes vows of celibacy as a matter of course. He was this young scion of the great Kuru dynasty, this virile, passionate warrior, with royal blood burning in his veins. Mm. Thus, his particular renunciation of wife, children, and so on was considered almost frightening. In fact, as soon as Devavrata made that vow, flower petals floated down from the celestial worlds, and the sound Bhishma could be heard echoing from the sky. It seems that Devavrata's vow was so terrible that even the gods were filled with awe. And from then on, Devavrata became known as Bhishma. In a sense, the gods changed Devavrata's name to Bhishma because of that vow, which, by the way, finally satisfied the Fisher King, who happily approved the union of Santanu and Sachavati. It's about time. <laughs> Bhishma carries Sachavati back to the Kuru capital. But wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, whoa, well, some more stuff while we're here. Bhishma carried Sachavati back to the Kuru capital and presented her to his father, letting him know that all barriers to their wedding had been removed. The marriage took place, and everyone was happy at least for some time. Eventually, however, things took a turn for the worse. It's the end of chapter one. We managed to catch ourselves up pretty good. good. That was very good. Dude, I'm so excited. Ah, I can't ah, wait so till he good. does the whole Mahabharata. Ah. very exciting. We'll have to read that too one day when uh, it comes out. Yeah, I'm about, I'm like almost halfway through the Mahabharata I have at home. It's like this thick. <laughs> I've been reading it to Shruti. Nice. Probably... I try to do it every night, not always, but uh, like 30 minutes every, you know, 30 yeah. minutes. We're getting into the good it's stuff. Getting, the yeah, story's starting to start, start picking deep. up as we go. And I love the way that he's kind of, there's so much more, like, when you read the... He makes it very approachable it, by it explaining very, it in terms that you can very, under, exactly. very much understand. I really, really it's very good. It. It's, oh, it's awesome. And I like how he gave the backstory to... So to you understand how, how things are happening, what's going up, on. Why it's going on. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, share with a friend if you like it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yep. Thank you.